0: Hello and welcome to the weekly worship podcast for Fuquay United Methodist Church. We think it's important not just that you listen today, but we would invite you to worship with us today. If you'd like to further engage your faith or the community around you and like to partner with us, please visit our website fvumc.org for more information. Also, we'd love to hang out with you on a Sunday morning, whether that's live, online, or in person. Online on Sunday mornings on our website Facebook page or YouTube channel you can enjoy the venue with us which is a worship service crafted for community online or you can join our live in-person services online at 1010 for our contemporary 1115 for our traditional if you'd like to worship in person with us we have worship at 9 o'clock and 1010 for our contemporary worship services and 1115 for our traditional worship at the end of the day we believe that when and where you worship is not nearly as important as that you worship and so we're so glad to be with you today, worshiping together. Well, hey, everybody, it's great uh, to be with you today. Uh, most of you are with us legitimately on the second Sunday, right, the second week of January in this new year. I'm also hopeful that uh, some of you are coming back to worship with us uh, in previous weeks as we go along in January, because we're going to keep sending folks back to today, because today uh, we are kicking off a new sermon series that I've been waiting for, for a full year called a place at the table. Uh, and, uh, this series is built off of uh, kind of two, two key places. All right. Two key places. The first is a place in scripture. And, uh, the second is a sermon, uh, slash a hymn uh, that I read recently that I love. And I'm kind of holding these two things together. All right. Here's the first thing that this uh, series is going to be built on, uh, Galatians chapter two, just one chapter Uh, But it is a fiery one, right? It's one of the first letters written uh, to a church in the area of Galatia back in the 0040s by a guy named Paul because a miracle has occurred in a place called Antioch and Galatia about that time. And that miracle is that people who have absolutely no reason and in many cases have been disallowed from sitting, fraternizing, eating with each other, hanging out with each other, being together. um, These people are all sitting together around a common table. They are uh, one community. They are one family, uh, all following Jesus. They see themselves bound together, created uh, to be together uh, because of the work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus Christ. They are bound together by something far greater than the strength of their differences. But something has happened uh, that has challenged that. And so now all of a sudden in Antioch and in Galatia, instead of all these folks sitting at one table together, they have been told and instructed that they are required To eat at two tables, one for the pure followers of Jesus and one for the others. And Paul has a problem with that. He says, if we do that, we nullify the grace of God. We nullify the love of God through Jesus Christ. Fiery words, fiery words. Uh, I want to spend some time unpacking that. What is the grace of God, the unearned, unearned love of God for us? Uh, what do we do with it? What does it look like in our lives in the weeks to come? Uh, the other uh, place that we're coming from here uh, is a uh, its a fourth stanza of a hymn written by a guy named Charles Wesley. Uh, back in the 1700s, Charles Wesley was the brother of uh, John Wesley. Uh, John and Charles and some of their friends were all kind of forerunners of a revival movement in the Church of England that over the course of the last few hundred years has come to be called Methodism. Uh, And so um, in his sermon called The Scriptural Way of Salvation, he ends with a verse written by his brother, Charles, uh, from a hymn. And uh, it's a response to chapter three of Revelation where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door knocking. I stand at the door knocking. If you'll let me in, I'll come and I'll feast together with you uh, at your table. And the words go like this, come quickly in, right? It's a response to that invitation. Come quickly in thou heavenly guest, nor ever hence remove, but sup with us and let the feast be everlasting love, right? Sup with us, come and dine with us like supper. Uh, And I also think it's always funny uh, in some of our older hymns that words like remove and love would have uh, sounded the same. Remove and love. No, I think it's remove and louve. I think that was it. But um, I just love that verse. Like when I read it, yeah, oh, gosh, sort of struck me in uh, both both of these two f- sort of focal points, right? Galatians chapter two, and then this uh, this stanza from the hymn. They're both about the grace of God, God's love for us, God's movement towards us, always, uh, and our invitation to uh, to a table, right? They're both about tables. Uh, both the tables that we inhabit together, but the tables that we inhabit together because they are the table of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, tables factor into Scripture all throughout. Uh, we talk about uh, sort of the great banquet table that comes. Uh, God's banquet feast is a, a promise all throughout the Old Testament with rich food and well-aged wine, a table where we would all come and feast uh, with God when God's way becomes our way, Uh And we believe that communion is a foretaste of that table. When we pray the the prayer called the Epiclesis, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and all these gifts of bread and wine. The last line uh, says, you know, we we eat around this table until Christ comes again in final victory. And we feast at last together at his heavenly table, right? It's a foretaste of some greater a table that we'll sit around together. Uh, so both of these passages are about tables. Both of these passages uh, are about the table of God and what it looks like uh, for us to eat around uh, those those tables together here and now. From start to finish of this week and the next five, uh, if there's anything you walk away with, I want you to walk away with these two things. Uh, the first is this: um, there is a place at the table for you because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a place at the table. For you. And second, uh, how we choose to use our tables matters. How we choose to use our tables matters. Tables, uh, we think of them sometimes as just a place to eat food, but they are not a benign place, right? Uh, tables are all all sorts of things happen at tables that we might go on, uh, you know, not noticing unless we pause long enough uh, to notice it. And so, so here we go. Uh, a table can be a place of belonging, right? We just had uh holiday season, thanksgiving, christmas, new years. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, at every one of those moments, I found myself around a round table. A table sometimes that I set, a table that sometimes was set for me or with me in mind. Uh sometimes the table was the lap, but <laughs> we were in a circle together eating collards. Like um uh, it was a place of belonging. It was a place where family existed. It's a place where there was a spot for me, maybe even a name card, maybe misspelled by my kids two or three years ago, but a place for me, uh, nonetheless set with me in mind. It was a place of belonging. Our tables can be places of belonging. Our, our tables can also be places of status or status symbols. Uh, we don't think of like banquets where, you know, the important people sit up front and the unimportant people sit in the back so much anymore, but they do exist right. Um, early on in my ministry, when I would do weddings, I'd go to the rehearsal dinner and the the party after the wedding uh, as well, the reception. Uh, Now I've got a lot of other responsibilities with family and stuff, so I don't get to do that very often. But um, I was just thinking through this week, like um, I was always at the front. I had a very important role in the wedding, but as soon as the reception came around, I was in the back. (laughs) Like My status changed pretty abruptly. I was always at a table with random aunts and uncles, and there was always, I felt like one person, that nobody really wanted to invite to the wedding, but they had to, and then that person was always at my table. So uh, your status can change very quickly uh, at a wedding uh, in my case. But uh, so tables can be a place of status, right? Uh, Tables can also be a place of inclusion or exclusion. I think any of us who have uh, lived through elementary school um, and uh, did so in a cafeteria without assigned seating Uh, You know what it's like to uh, walk up to a table of the cool kids and have someone slide over into the blank space you were about to sit in and to say there's no room here. Uh, And we may know the pain of what it looks like to walk uh, that long walk of shame from the cool table uh, over to the table where there's uh, actually room of other people who are also not allowed uh, at that table. And if you've never had that experience, congratulations, you're one of the cool kids. (laughs) Um, But it's a hard experience, right? It It can be a place of exclusion, of isolation. I think a table uh, can also be a place of identity. Uh, It's not just elementary school where cafeterias are a problem, but I think about when I went off to school for college, I didn't really know a lot of people who were there, just two or three. And if they weren't available to go and sit with me in the cafeteria for lunch, that was always like a, you know, heart thumping sort of moment. Where am I going to sit? Am I going to sit by myself and be branded as a person who has no friends? Uh, Am I going to sit at that table over there where all the athletic people are sitting? Am I going to sit at that table over there where everybody's uh, sitting together, but reading, you know, am I going to sit at that table where everyone's laughing and telling jokes, which table you choose to sit at can give you a group of friends. It can give you an identity for the next four years. It always felt like a really dicey sort of scenario. So tables are not benign places. They're not places where we just sit to eat. Uh, They're tables that can give us a belonging or not. There are tables that can set our status. Uh, There are tables where we can be excluded or included, and there are places where we can find our our identity. Uh, Tables are not benign. The table of Jesus is a table that's been set for you, right? There's a place at the table for you. Um, And if that's true, then that means that how we use our tables matters. I I actually think uh, at the end of the day, um, I can say that uh, we are invited and called to use our tables in the way that Jesus has chosen to use his table for us. And I say that uh, because of Galatians chapter two. Um, We don't have uh, a ton of time while we're together today to go into great detail. We could probably spend months doing it, but I'd like to give you some high level uh, as to why I say that um, this morning, and uh, maybe it will just kind of set us up uh, for the next few weeks and hold hold us all together. So let's turn to the context of Galatians chapter two and and how Paul's fiery argument ends uh, at the end of it. Um, in Galatia and in Antioch, these two little towns, as I said, back in the 0040s, a miracle occurred. There were all these people that should never have been eating together who were eating together around one table. The primary distinction that we come up against in Galatians, though there were many distinctions that should have kept them apart, uh, status, um, all sorts of other things uh, in their community, uh, ritual, custom, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, were Really, the, the the main delineating force here was the difference between Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. Jewish followers of Jesus were Jewish. Gentile followers of Jesus were followers of Jesus who were anything and everything but Jewish. Uh, and yet, they were all sitting together uh, at one table. Uh, really, around this time is when the word Christian started to be used. So uh, I want to call them Christians, uh, but but know that that was not a widely used term, and I want to be careful about using it, particularly in this context, because when we hear the word Christian and the word Jewish, we tend to think of those as being two vastly different things. That Jewish people who were followers of Jesus called Christians must have left a thing called Judaism and gone into a thing called Christianity, but that would be a terrible assumption for us to make, because Jesus. Jewish people believed some some did many did. Uh, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah sent to the Jewish people, right? He was this promised leader that God had been promising for thousands of years to send to the Jewish people. To follow Jesus for them was not to leave a thing called Judaism. It was just to to continue to be fully a thing called Jewish, a people, a part of the people, uh, a part of the people of God here's here's what I mean when I say that they were expecting a Messiah go back with me to the very beginning um, of the whole Bible right to Genesis page one right page one of the Bible uh, in the beginning when God created the world God didn't just create the world to uh, to look a particular way but God created the world and everything in it to work together in a particular way everything for the benefit of everything else uh humming together like a well oiled machine the old rabbis uh, called that uh, that state of being shalom, which we translate as peace, but it's more than just peace. That's the absence of violence. It's peace. That's harmony and flourishing and everything working together as it ought, as it ought to, as it should be. Right. Um, and, uh, very early on in the story, we thought humans thought we could reorder the world in a way that would benefit us more. And when we did, we broke it and we allowed what we call sin to enter into that equation. Now we're going to talk more about sin in the next two, three weeks, in the next three weeks. Um, But uh, just for right now, uh, suffice it to say, sin is the thing that broke shalom. It is anti-shalom. Sin is the thing that uh, took a system that was humming like a well-oiled machine and broke it. So it now clicks and clacks against itself. And we experience the, uh, the, the side effects of that, the symptoms of that. We experience the brokenness of that. Very early on, we saw murder. We saw idolatry. We saw people fighting. We saw people moving further and further and further apart from each other. But God promises us in that moment never to leave us alone in our brokenness because of the choices that we made. God promises to restore shalom. One day he makes that promise to a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah who were married. And God promises Abraham and Sarah that through their family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As the Old Testament progresses along, we hear God begin to fill that promise out. God promises uh, not just a a feast at a table at the end, but God promises this thing called the kingdom of God. When the way of God becomes our way, when everything begins to work again as God uh, imagined for it to be, God refers to that time of being through the voice of the prophets as a new creation, as the kingdom of God. And to initiate and inaugurate this kingdom, this covenant with us, fulfill this covenant, was going to be uh, a messiah an anointed leader who was to come. And many Jews of Jesus' day came to believe uh, that Jesus, they became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And they began to follow Jesus, all the things that Jesus said and did. Uh, But there were some who did not. And in fact, one of the people that did not was the pastor of the churches in Galatia and Antioch. His name was Paul. He was there, very likely, when they voted to crucify Jesus. He was there holding the coats of everyone who stoned the first Christian martyr named Stephen to death in the street outside of town. He was the one uh, who was going door to door in this sort of terror campaign, dragging Christians out of their homes and throwing them into prison. And in fact, when he was on his way on a special operation to find some who had escaped from Jerusalem, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And in that moment, he became convinced that the claims that Christ had been making were true. He believed That on the cross, Jesus had taken on all of the brokenness, not just the symptoms of sin, but sin itself, the root cause, the root sickness that had infected all of God's beautiful creation, this anti-shalom, that he had taken it on himself, all the hate, all the evil, all the brokenness, all the injustice, all the darkness of the world, and in its place, through his resurrection, had launched a new way of being human, a new way of being creation, a new way of being community, that God had launched this new creation, the kingdom of God, in its fullness and that we could experience the beauty of that now through the work of Jesus on the cross in his resurrection and through his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. Paul believed that so much. Not only was he able to convince uh, follow, the Jewish people to follow Jesus, that, that, that he was the, the fulfillment of, of God's promises over the course of time, but it makes no sense that a non-Jewish person not worshiping a Jewish God would all of a sudden come to be compelled by the message of this random Messiah. But Paul was so convinced and so convinced them that the one true God of the universe, the one that they had been looking for and searching for all their lives through all their idols and all their worship services, and all their cults and cultures and practices, that the one true God of the universe had not just done this for the Jewish people, but had done this for all people. That Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah that through their family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Jews and Gentiles alike, convicted and convinced, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit as a gift from God, began to see and to live together in this new way of being human, this new way of being community, this new way of sitting in communion with each other that we have come to call church. And they sat at a table together. And this was not just Paul. Paul did not have a lot of Christian credentials, right? He was not an insider from the very beginning, but there was a man named Peter who was. Peter was a disciple. Peter was one of uh, Jesus' favorite disciples, got to do all the special things with him. In fact, one day, Peter, which in Greek means Petros, Petros, which means rock, uh, and then Cephas, which is uh, sort of a more, uh, uh, in another language, uh, it also means rock. I'll fix that next week. Um, Jesus says, I will call you Cephas, right? And on you, Peter, Cephas, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Peter, the one with all the Christian credentials in the world, becomes also convinced, not from what he's seeing in Paul, but from the work of the Spirit in and around him. In another place, at another time, Peter has a vision from God and then enters into the home of a man named Cornelius. And he says to Cornelius, who was not a Jewish person, he was a follower of God, but not Jewish, not circumcised, not fully righteous under the law. He becomes convinced and says to, to Cornelius that he now believes that there is no partiality, there's no favoritism for Jew over Gentile, but that God sees us all as equals sees the work of the Holy Spirit, he's baptized Gentiles, he's been in the home of Gentiles, he's feasted at the table with Gentiles. But some of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem don't like the fact that Jews and Gentiles are sitting together. That would have been anathema to their understanding of the way it meant to be a person of God. The fact that we would call people followers of Jesus who had not experienced the full sort of invitation and entrance into the Jewish People, through the sign of the covenant, the mark of the covenant, which was circumcision, they would have—they uh, were just astounded that these people were allowing this type of thing to happen. These people would just be able to eat together. And so a guy named James, uh, one of the disciples, sends some people from Jerusalem up to Antioch. Peter himself comes. And when they get there, they say, you guys can't sit together at the table anymore. Instead of sitting at one table, we need you to sit at two tables. I've been calling that faction purists. I don't like that name, but it's easiest thing to say because they say, if we're going to be purely followers of Jesus, then we've got to be Jewish first and then we can be pure. So they created a table for the purists, for the ones who were right in every single way, for the ones who had done everything exactly as they should have done. And then for the other followers of Jesus, they weren't saying that the other followers of Jesus weren't Christian. They weren't saying they weren't allowed to be followers of Jesus. They were just saying they weren't as good as those who were sitting at their table. To that, Paul says this at the end of this chapter, And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? Messiah, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, then Christ has died for nothing. He is saying to Peter, and all the purists sitting at a table by themselves, if you are sitting at a table by yourselves because you think that you are better than the other followers of Jesus, you are nullifying the grace of God. You're saying that something that you can do by attaining righteousness through the law, through these rules and regulations that God gave us, the law that was intended to shepherd us into the moment that the Messiah would come and deal with all the brokenness that we've been dealing with, would set loose this new created order, If you're saying that you still have to follow those old ways, then you're saying it has to do with what you're doing and not what Christ has done for you. You're saying that you are living by a way, in a way, before this new created order began. You are nullifying the grace of God. I think that in this moment, Paul was reminding us that how we use our tables, it matters. It matters. If we confess the grace of Jesus Christ with our lips, but we operate in a different way, we are nullifying through our actions. What we are saying, we believe. Paul would remind us that at the table of Jesus, it is a place where we belong. We belong at his table by his invitation. It's a place where our status has changed. We are not pure because of what we do or do not do. We are pure because of the death of Jesus Christ. We have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, that we are no longer excluded, but we are included. Through his resurrection ascension, Jesus has made a place at the table for us, has scooted over to provide room for every single one of us. And when we sit at that table, our identity is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, Scythian or barbarian. There is a place at the table for you where you can find belonging and status, where you are included and find your full identity as a child of God. With Paul... I invite you to come back for the next few weeks and consider that this is an invitation that's been made to you. For the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about the grace of God. And then the two weeks after that, we're gonna talk about how to not accidentally nullify it. I would to encourage you to make a commitment right now to come back and hang out with us uh, for the next five weeks. Um, and as we continue to explore uh, these two beautiful invitations, one, an invitation to come and feast at the table of the Lord who has set a place uh, with your name on it. And two, to make sure that the way we use our tables is a way that brings honor and glory to the grace that's at work in our life because how we use our tables matters. We'll see you guys next weekend. Again, it's been great to worship together with you today. If you would like to engage your faith or the community around you, we'd love to partner with you in that. You can visit our website, fvumc.org. To find out more information on what that looks like or to reach out to us. I'd like to extend another invitation for you to come and join us online or in person on Sunday mornings live. Uh, And while you're on our website, uh, again, if this is a regular place that you find spiritual sustenance, we'd love to partner with you as we serve our community here in the greater Fuquay area, um, fvumc.org slash give would help you uh, join with us in all of the wonderful work that happens in and through this family of faith here at Fuquay Verena United Methodist Church. It's been great to worship together with you, and we look forward to doing again soon.